Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Paris M Brand Milan uh, for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. It is June 22nd, 2017, and this is being recorded at 454 Lexington Avenue in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah? Tell me about what you do here, about your work and what this place is. Um, so, I'm a case manager here at uh, Housing Works, and this specific building we help women to have a history either of criminal history or um, of just homelessness in general. So, we give them housing, we give them extra support as needed. It's a great experience for me. How long have you been working here? Now it's been five years. Wow. Have long you time. been <laughs> at this facility the whole time? Strangely enough, no. I was here for two years, and then I went to another department for about two years, and then I came back next year. Mm -hmm. So it feels good to be home. Excellent. And do you live far from here? Do you live in Brooklyn? No, I live in the Bronx. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a truck, but it's, uh, it's well worth it. I have great co-workers, great supervisor. Great residence. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me some about your childhood. Uh, where to begin? <laughs> I guess it was pretty normal childhood. Um, my mother's a single parent, so my father really wasn't there. He kind of resurfaced, I guess, when I was around 13 or 14. We don't really have the best relationship. Have um, brothers. Quite a number of brothers. Um, that's just basically it. What is your mom like? What is she like? Mm -hmm. huh. She's a great person. She's um, very sweet, kind, understanding about some things, not so much so about other things, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like just a normal, regular woman. Mm -hmm. And tell me about yourself when you were a kid. What, do you have a sense of what your personality was like? Strong. Yeah. I always had a strong personality. Sometimes I have to um, tone it down because it can be too strong for other people and kind of like um, off-putting, I guess. So. What does strong mean? Strong in the sense that I'm, I know what I like I know basically like uh, what works for me, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of stubborn about some things. Yeah. And what were your teenage years like for you? Uh, my teenage years were interesting also. So uh, I began to live my truth in my early years, and um, strange story, I used to go to school and there was a Mrs. Winters on Memorial Drive and Herringstead, like close to my house. And on the way to, to school every day, I would go to Mrs. Winters, like change in the bathroom, very like Superman kind of thing, and go as me. When I would go to school, I would get caught. There was an assistant principal there named Mr. Prince. I hated him, like, and I hated him, like, if I had a machete. Like, he sounded yeah. like a supervillain. Yeah, he Mr. was. Prince. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Prince. So he would catch me, he would call my grandmother, my grandmother would come get me, 
and I would be, you know, counter dressed and I would get suspended. And so, oh, you can come the next day, and then I would do the same thing, and this happened like every single day. And my grandmother always kept this a secret. Well, eventually my mother found out. Yeah, that wasn't like, that wasn't pretty. So that caused like this whole rift when I was like maybe in ninth grade, so I had to be like 14 maybe. What kind of clothes would you put on? It was like whatever I can get really at the time because it wasn't like it really had like I didn't have any financial income sure. so it was like oh I would go to my cousin's house like oh Jennifer you mind if I take this mm-hmm. huh. or like I had a friend who lived down the street named Shay she'd be like oh you can have this because it was too small so it wasn't always like the best quality of clothes or like the most well put together outfits but I mean I felt more comfortable wearing that than I did wearing something else. What did um, your mom do to get by? To how did she pay rent? Well, she worked a number of jobs actually while she was in school. She worked what? A number of jobs. Mm-hmm. One job she was like a greeter at a um, car dealership. I know while she was in school. Another time she was like working as a nurse and she was a home health aide. Mm-hmm. At one point over the weekends, she did a lot of stuff. And you said she was in school. Yeah, she was in school. Was that for most of your years growing up? Well, yeah, most of my years he was in school. Yeah. Yeah. And your brothers, did they did they work while you were growing up, or what were their lives like? No, like, um, one of my brothers is like eight or nine years younger than me. So, like, he can work. <laughs> He's like, just now working now, basically. And um, my other brother, you know, we're the same age, so he didn't work either. Strangely enough, we're like complete opposites either, like, you know, complete opposites too. My brother that's the same age as I am, we're like complete opposites. How so? Um, he's more like laid back and kind of cautious where I'm more like adventurous and like, you know, hair to the wind. Mm-hmm. And did you ever cross paths with uh, other people living their truths with? I don't know what terms, but queer or trans people when you were growing up? Yeah, I did actually. So, once my mother and I got into this huge like argument because she couldn't find these red lace panties. So she was like, well, woke me up in like, the middle of the night. She's like, this is go crazy. She woke me up in the middle of the night. She's like, oh, where are my red lace panties? I'm like, I have no idea. You know, she's like, oh, I know you have them because she already knew I had been dressing up. So she was just like fixated on the whole idea that I had to take these panties. So she kicked me out of the house. So for like three days I was like sleeping on the uh, train in Atlanta. There's a train that runs like till midnight and then it starts wake up at five in the morning. So I was like taking the train or whatever and stuff. I remember I was like like 14 at the time. 14. Yeah. So like one day this girl sits next to me and she's like, I know what you is. And I'm like, what? She's like, I know what you is. I'm one too. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then comes to find out, like, she was like a trans woman also. She was a little older than I am. Like, she was maybe like 23, 24 at the time. She took me in. Her name is Chantel, Chantel Powell. She took me in and I stayed with her for literally maybe like two years. Huh. Mm-hmm. She got me on hormones. She um, made sure I went to school. And she would let me dress. In the house, I could dress as a girl, but then when I went out, she was like, oh, you're not ready to dress, you know. Yeah. 
And then I, when I reached a certain point, she's like, okay, now you're ready to go out in public. So. Tell me about her life. What was she, what was she like? She was actually like, a, a, she's a great person. Like she, she kind of like seemed to be like my big sister. Like even when um, she ended up moving, cause she had a boyfriend named Kevin. She ended up moving with Kevin and stuff and I ended up moving with them, you know? At that time, like my name was in Paris, my name was Fee. So like people who know me for like years, they call me Fee. Cause I wanted to change my name to Phoebe. But nobody liked this name. Phoebe's a good name. I know, I still like the name Phoebe, but no one liked this. So when I changed it, I changed it to Paris. But all my friends have known me forever and a day. They call me Phoebe. Yeah, it's like, life is strange. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, I moved in with, with her and Kevin and stuff. And, like, she was like, like, she was like my real sister. Or, like, you know, like an aunt that was, like, not too far older than I am. Chantelle? Chantelle, yes. And how did she and Kevin get by what kind of did they work or? I know Kevin worked at a grocery store so he didn't really have like the best financial means or anything and he was much younger like he was he was much younger he had to be like 21 20 ish yeah and she sold so you know you use what you got yeah. but we we never like we never never like lacked anything I guess you could say like you know she always found a way to to have food and stuff you know she's just a great person and was she a part of a trans community or scene in in atlanta at all no no she chantel lived basically in stealth strangely enough i like discovered the trans scene from one of her friends who kept coming over i was like oh you know it's like other girls and then i was like really (laughs) like there's more of us you know we do exist that kind of uh, mentality so that was like very strange. I ended up meeting um, other girls, like I met Dee Dee Shambly, who uh, ran Legender. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. It's like a trans organization in Atlanta under... Um, Legender? Legender, yeah. Legender Incorporated. And I like worked with uh, Dee Dee and stuff, and then there was a, another woman there who uh, branched off and started her own organization too, and then like they were kind of like grooming me because I was like young, and like they were just like great role models. So that's how I was introduced to like more girls. Mm-hmm. Been thrown into the scene. And uh, tell me some about the scene. Like what, what, how big was it? What was it like? Where were the people like, like demographically and in terms of how people would hang out? Well, demographically the scene that I was familiar with were uh, majority black trans women, mm-hmm. post-operative, um, yeah. Who didn't really have the financial means for like surgery, but still, um, dressed and lived their truth and stuff nevertheless they were completely happy in themselves they had like relationships long term relationships which is kind of funny because here in New York you really don't find that as much so I've noticed like a, a huge difference in culture um, but there were also like you know Caucasian trans women like for example one um, one of the ladies Jamie we're still friends today she like Caucasian trans woman she became like a lawyer and like she's like cool as hell hmm. post operative so forth and yeah I met her actually through you know, the Legenda group. Yeah. She's a volunteer there. And so this Legenda Inc. is a, is it like a a service organization or a political organization or what do they, what did they do? It's, it's a service kind of organization because they provide, um, well, they provided, I don't know what they do now. I know that they're still around, so I imagine it's still, or in the same vein of things, but they provide like support groups and, um, 
you know, disclosure to family, you know, that you want to live your truth. They provide, um, help you with name changes and so this forth. It's like mutual support. Yeah. yeah. They even like, um, I ended up working at a, a part-time job at the um, AUC. What's that? Uh, Atlanta University Center. It's like Morehouse, uh, Morris Brown, and Clark. Because mm-hmm. they used to give um, panels and stuff, panel discussions regarding like social issues and stuff. And I was like, like super young, super young. But like, Didi's like, oh, this is what you know you're gonna do. So like, she like grooming for this stuff. So I ended up getting a job there, and um, and all that was facilitated through Didi. Like, she made that connection to kind of educate the the future years and stuff, the upcoming people to whom we're gonna be part of today's society, the working class, uh, just general society. Yeah. Yeah. That. Uh... Were you? Were there other young trans people in being supported and cultivated in that community? Not in the gender. Yeah. Mostly the people were kind of like older. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Like I wouldn't consider them to be old now, because <laughs> they were like uh, they were like you know maybe like late thirties to like maybe like fifties and sixties, but they were like just great overall. And how old were, or I'm sorry, what year was it when you moved in with Chantelle? I moved in Chantelle, so I had to be like, you know, 14, 15. I was yeah. for like two years. And what year was that? Many years ago. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. Was it the 90s or the... Yeah, it was... The 2000s? It was like the 90s going into the 2000s-ish, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, and were, how long did you stay in school during that time? And when did you start working? I stayed in school most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I didn't like start, um, strangely enough, like I didn't like, I didn't finish the school that I was going there at the time. Like, my last year there was like my senior year, like, and I dropped out from that. I had to go back to school later on. When was that? When did you go? Much later on. It was like, I had to be like 26. Yeah. Yeah, like, so like years later. So, uh, working at the AUC, uh, connected to La Gender Inc., living with Chantel and Kevin, beginning to sort of be connected to other people, mostly African-American trans women, seeing. Um, did it overlap with a ball community, or was it more separate? Yeah, I mean, there was, there was some times where, when I was involved in the, the ball scene, but that didn't really interest me as much. Yeah. Um, what were the differences between people that were in that scene and folks who were not and like what? Okay, so hmm. okay, so in general, the ballroom scene and stuff is uh, it tends to have a a different uh, mentality, and I don't think it's the individual person. I think it's because it has more to do with like uh, because it's unmasked. You know, certain primal instincts are intensified and stuff, and certain like uh, natural, certain things like that. So it's not like like an individual person in the ballroom scene is really able to show their own personal personality. It's like the group, and in the ballroom scene, because it's competitive and it's really geared toward a look instead of the essence of one being oneself and the essence of one bettering theirself. That takes away from what it could actually do. I think that's why, for me, it caused a disconnect, and I really wasn't pleased being involved in that venue. Yeah. 
So you encountered it and really had a sense that it was not, like, would not help you. And was there a kind of clear community of other people that were not involved? Or was it just a, some people wore, some people weren't, and you all hung out together? Mm, more so back in those days, it was like, you know, if you were, you were, if you weren't, you weren't kind of thing. Um, as I was getting older, I noticed that a lot of my friends became ballroom girls and they tended to gravitate toward each other. Yeah. You know, there was like, you know, a stark difference between the two. It's like, you know, we're sheep and they're goats and never shall the two meet kind of thing. But um, now, it's kind of like back to a blend. Because moving to New York seems like everyone is involved in the ballroom scene, strangely enough. And then you're like, oh, wait, you're in the ballroom scene? Like, yeah, like, oh, I would have never imagined. And what do you think they thought about you? Um, Were they the goats or the sheep? I missed that. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I never try to figure out who's the goat or the sheep. Yeah, it's probably for the best. I think it's for the best too. Because if I I do, then then I probably would drive myself mad. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I, I don't know what they thought of me. They probably thought the same thing. Strangely enough, it's it's kind of funny too because when you look at something. From your perspective, everything is colored in peach, peach like lenses and stuff, you know. And if someone else is looking, it may be lavender. So, you know, we all view life differently. We all see life how we want to see it or how it suits us. So maybe for them, I was the goat. Who knows? <laughs> maybe not. Uh, and in this. Um... Uh, the people, the other trans people you knew in Atlanta, um, what were people's interface with, oh, social services and institutions? Like, were, I mean, I, uh, were there aid services that people were connected to? Was there, like, public housing? What, what, See, it's, what that's very there? strange, too, because, okay, so, back then, um, back then when I was there, well, as far as like aid services, like I had a friend now named Kevin who I know he worked at like um, Aid Atlanta. This is a different Kevin than Chantel's. Yes, this is a different Kevin. Kevin. This is, um, I don't know Kevin's last name. I think it's like Beardum. But this is a different Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this Kevin actually became a growing years later. <laughs> yeah, so totally different Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. But um, this Kevin I knew worked at like Aids in Atlanta and like he would go and, you know, give out literature and just was like, you know, just cool, like cool, cool person. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know anyone else that was like, oh, you know, there are aid services or there are services to help with housing or there are services for this. Especially in the, the borrow scene, they were like more focused on, oh, you know, you should get the look, save your money so you can get the implants, you know, oh, you need a nose. You know, that's kind of how it was. It was very superficial in a way. And, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, when you get old and you're like 90, no one cares if you have perfect tits. No one cares. Hopefully they care about more important things. Yes. (laughs) It's your conversation and your personality that's going to keep you, like, um, connected to your friends, your families, and your loved ones. It's not your perfect breast, your amazing ass, or you know, your washboard stomach. So that would be nice, I imagine. That might be. 
possibly so. And um, what was the drug use like? What drugs were big? How common were they? Oh, so in my day it was um, cocaine and it was ecstasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And would um, like people spin out and like disappear into jail or rehab, or would people oh, mostly keep it? Yeah. Well, I don't know about rehab, yeah. <laughs> but jail, of course. Like, um, like um, prison. Oh, hearing your friends went to prison. Uh, you know, you won't see them for, you know, two years, three years. That was kind of a normal thing. It's like, oh, you know, you know, Coco, Coco got locked. Oh, okay. So what are we gonna do tonight? <laughs> you know, it was no big deal. It didn't even face you. It's very strange. Rehab wasn't wasn't really a thing. You know, you you told a girl she had a problem. With substances, she was like, oh, okay. Grain of salt kind of thing. Yeah. Were some people in recovery? Or was that also not a thing? If they were in recovery, it was like um, them in recovery alone with yeah. no support or anything because that wasn't something that really, really happened. Yeah. Do you remember uh, friends, good friends of yours getting locked out? Oh, like, yeah. And not being... That'd oh yeah. yeah. Well, I would say it, it, it was hard. I couldn't say it was hard at all because you know it became such a, a way of life. You oh, know wow. that, that it was it was my normality. You know. And how about um, how people in that those communities got by? Like uh, I, in a lot of interviews, people talked about sex work. In others, people had jobs on the side if they managed to pull together. What was the what was that landscape like? Well, the majority of the people I knew didn't work jobs. Yeah. It was uh, sex work, forgery, or identity theft, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, smash and grabs, bank pulls, selling drugs. I knew quite a number of drug dealers in my day. Um, yeah, that was basically it. And without naming names no, what, what's not. identity theft like how did that work how did people make money off that okay so identity theft, theft usually would uh, hand in hand with um, check fraud mm-hmm. so you would pay Billy um, Billy you know money for an ID you would pay Sarah money also for like a book of checks that she printed out and then you would go and you would just uh, use them on Someone's real account, I guess, into, you know, you, you would use them until you get, like, the merchandise. And you would take the merchandise back after the grace period back and get it back in cash. Or else, if that account was close at that point, you would, you know, scratch and get ready for, you know, to go back out again. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how, it was a way of life. Yeah. And what's a bank pool? Uh, a bank pool. Oh, wow, well, like you. You've never heard of these before? I am. I don't know about them. Oh, wow. You've lived a good life. <laughs> so a bank pool is like, um, if I come to you and I say, okay, um, Michelle, like, uh, I got this check, but I don't have an account. This check is for $3,000. i will tell you what, if you, if you put it in your account, I'll give you 600 off the top. You know, you know, here you go. And you're like, okay, yeah, no worries. So you take the check, you deposit it to your account, you give me... You know, my portion, you keep six because you're a good friend, so I'm, of course, paying your six. And then you find out later that this check was fraudulent, so therefore you have to pay back the whole thing. 
And if you don't, you will be facing criminal charges. That's a main goal. Yeah. And uh, I, I know about people writing to strangers over email to try to make that happen. But in yeah. this world, how would people find somebody to do that? Strangely enough, like people still do bank pulls today. And this is what I'm so surprised about. I'm like, I'm like, because I've been in plenty of cars where like people are like, oh, we're going to meet this person. We're pulling a bank pull. And I'm like, But like people are people are still doing it today. Like I had a, a a guy send a message to me on Facebook and he was like, Oh, you know, I got a check in the account. I was like, Won't get me, sweetie. <laughs> you know, they would they would do this when I was young. <laughs> this isn't anything new. So I'm surprised. I'm I'm honestly like in awe that people are still able to pull this off. Yeah. Well, apparently, in the world of the internet, it's super common, right? Yeah. All sorts of scams along these lines. Yeah, like, it, it just reminds you of, like, um, it reminds you of, like, the Fiddler scam. Tell, me, tell us about that. Like, this, this shows you, like, <laughs> like, the group of people who I hung up growing up with. Yeah. So, like, um, the Fiddler scam was, like, um, okay, so you own a restaurant, so... This guy comes in and eats, and he has his his violin. So he's like, "Oh, I forgot my wallet, but I have a a concert tonight. This is my only means of making money. If you don't mind, I can let you hold my violin while I'm going to get my money from the hotel." So you're like, "Okay," because you're like, "He's a musician. This is his only way of living." And yeah, by chance, there's a second person there who who is another customer who says, "Oh." Yeah, that instrument is a very rare instrument. Yeah, yeah. It costs this. You know, I can't believe he left it with you. You know, I have to go. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe it. So then, by the time I come back, you're like, oh, well, how much if I buy the instrument from you, and you make a deal with me, and you pay me to buy the instrument, and you find out later on you have a worthless violin. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a, um, it's like a two-person con filler scam. Yeah. Like I am so surprised that these. People are still still using the same cons from like way back when. But when did you move to New York? I moved to New York uh, 2011 September. Mm-hmm. So um, you were in Atlanta for a while, or did you go any place else first? Oh, I mean, I went like other places. I went to uh, Hoover, Alabama, which is right outside of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. I was there for like six months. Seemed like forever. What brought you to Hoover? Uh, I had a friend of mine whose who mother had passed. Mm-hmm. And when his mother passed, like, he was kind of inconsolable. So I only kept him company. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, though, like, I've seen a lot of, like, a, a lot of, like, guys there in, in, in Birmingham, Hoover. But, like, when you told them you were trans, they were like, oh, that means you like women. That's fine. I'm like, wait, <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. Um, and what brought you to New York? I still haven't figured out what brought me to New York exactly. It's just one of those things that happened. It's kind of like organic. Strange, right? Yeah. I know at the time uh, I was divorced, so I kind of needed to change the senior anyway. Mm-hmm. Tell me about uh, your marriage and divorce. Uh, I was married to um, this guy. Like, yeah, I met him. He was hot. We got married almost immediately. And then we found out we had very, very different views on things, very, very different 
ways of life, values, like he wasn't the guy for me. Aside from being like physically attractive and stuff and the physical connection, like there was really nothing much more. What were some of your different moral views? Um, okay, so I was raised that like you have to earn everything you have. Be it, even, even like when I hung out with like people who were like doing scams, fraud, whatever, bank pulls, you know, like they were earning at least their keep. What's not earning? Not earning is like saying, oh, I'm just going to sit back and wait to see if this comes through from the government for me. Uh, so like services. Yeah. And, and just being like strictly relying on that. Yeah. To me, I think that like shows like a, a lack of ambition and a, you know, determination to better one's life. Uh, and were there, was public assistance adequate for anyone to do that? No. I, no. I, I'm thinking this is after welfare reform <laughs> in a southern state, like I can't definitely imagine not. public assistance was that generous. No, definitely not. But that, and that like to me, that makes the point even, even clearer, like you know, you can't sit back and wait on something when you can go and do something for yourself, yeah. you know, the cart's not going to move unless you push it, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And you, what was your husband's attitude? On He's like, oh, if we look at the cart long enough, eventually it's going to move. Someone has to have telepathy, you know, that kind of, no, it doesn't work like that. So, very crazy life. So what was, um, so when you first got to New or I'm sorry, like, before we get to New York, uh, how, did you do other work after the university? Were you doing clerical stuff at the university, or what was your job there? Okay, so, at first I was just doing the, um, like, I was, like, on the panel, for, like, the gender issues. The panel? The panel, yeah, when the gender would come over for like the panel discussions, I was doing that. Okay. And then I ended up getting a job um, as a music so librarian. Or speak publicly yes. on trans issues. Yes. Well, LGBT issues. Okay. In general. Okay. Like I usually didn't disclose I was trans until like the end of the conversation if that ever came up. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't think it was like, I didn't think it was necessary. Yeah. To divulge at the beginning. And how often would these panels happen? Oh, they were like quite frequent. Huh. Yeah. So you were a public speaker. I always just saw this panelist, but okay, that yeah. works, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long did you do that for? I did it for like a year and a half, two. Mm-hmm. And then after that. And then um, after that, I became a music librarian. A music librarian. Yes. What does that like? Okay, so um, at Morehouse in Brawley Hall, there's like the music department. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, um, Dr. Alfred Duckett was there. Who is that? Dr. Alfred Duckett, um, he is, he's one of the professors. Like he does with like um, orchestra. Mm-hmm. So like a friend of a friend kind of thing. Like he was friends with uh, Miss Thompson and Miss Thompson was my... T- uh, my music teacher. So like she ended up getting me the job. So I was the music librarian at the college in Broadway Hall at Morehouse. So like that's what I did. And um, because of that, I could take courses. So I would take courses even though I wasn't quite of age to take courses. And they were free. Yeah. 
So you had a job at the library, the music yeah. library. Uh, um, how long did you do that for? I think like maybe like two years. Yeah. So you mentioned that in the, this scene of other trans women, almost nobody had a job. Yeah. But you you were able to to get jobs or this job at least. Yeah, I had a job. That's great. And after that, um, I engaged in sex work like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like you know, I was seeing how much money everyone else was making, and it was right. yeah, it was like big fish, little fish, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, and what would you like to tell us about about? working in sex work? Um, sometimes it can be tasky. Yeah. I mean, I did that for a while and stuff, mind you. It really wasn't for me. Even though like, I had, like, regulars and I treated everyone else humanely and, like, they kind of like my personality because I'm quirky and strange. Yes, I've just admitted I'm quirky and strange. But, um, it really wasn't for me because I don't really, like, get in random phone calls at, like, crazy hours of night are people like, you know, getting dressed and dolled up for someone to stand you up. It makes you kind of look bitter in a way. It makes you really bitter and pissed and kind of resentful. So that really didn't work for me. How did you get clients? Uh, I advertised on, on Arrows and uh, mm-hmm. Craigslist back page. Then Craigslist had got like busted and I was like, no more Craigslist for me, you know. And then uh, after a while, like, I didn't even have to advertise because I had like regulars, like I had my regulars that were coming. Were most of the other uh, trans folk doing sex work um, get, getting clients from online services? Yes, the ones that I were hanging out with that were doing sex work, they were. Mm-hmm. It was strictly online at that time. It, it was like a, a stark difference between the online girl and the you know, the young lady in the street. Yeah. What it was, was it? it was like a caste system, I guess, like a like a, a difference in class. It was like, oh, you know, you know, oh she walks the street kind of thing. And everyone I hung out was an online kind of girl. Which is strange because the same guys to whom go and see the girls online they purchase their pleasure also in the street. Mm-hmm. You know? Just at a discounted rate I imagine. Maybe that's why it was, it was, um, you know, the reason to have a divide between the two. It's like, huh. Like that, they can't see your facial expression. How would you describe what, what you were indicating? Um, you know, it's like the look of disdain. Like, hmm. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And why, what, what would be the obstacles for girls who work the street to be able to transition to doing online work. I imagine online work was a little safer than yeah. being on the street. Oh, it was a lot safer. Yeah. It, it was really safe, safe, much safer. Like, I'll tell you this, like, um, like, all my girlfriends that had went to the street, or knew someone on the street, everyone on the street had got busted. They had went to jail, like, for, you know, loitering or prostitution or what have you and stuff. But all the girls who worked on the internet, they didn't get busted. You know? And they had, like, a more discreet clientele. So it was, like, you know, the guy to whom he can't ride around at 3 o'clock in the morning to pick up his pleasure. You know, he doesn't mind calling you and say, oh, do you have any time for lunch? (laughs) 
you know? So it was a higher clientele. It was um, a huge difference between the lives I imagine of the online girls or the internet girls and the, the other. So why couldn't anyone be, become an internet girl? I think it had to do more with the look, personality, and uh, just the manner of actually speaking to someone. Because, you know, if, if a guy's going to call you and you're like, you know, what you want, you know, oh, this is what I do, wham, 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 and you're like illicit and lewd and vulgar, I don't think he's going to come as much as if you're like poised and a little refined and kind of conservative, yet at the same time showing that you're not too eager to see him. Because if you seem too eager, it's kind of strange. They're like, wait, why is she eager to see me? You have to be like, hmm. Well, if you come, you come, and if not, you know. So performing a sort of class. Of course. Status. Interesting. So people that knew how to do that or were like trained or clued into that could do online work more easily. Of course. I remember when I first started doing it, one of my girlfriends says, oh, you're too nice to them. You're too nice to them on the phone. You're to treat them accordingly. <laughs> you know, I was like, huh, oh, thank you for the knowledge. <laughs> it was very interesting times. Yeah. Um, and what, what was the level of awareness around, uh, like, mm, STD risk? And were, were people on top of that and paying attention to that and thinking about that? Mm, you mean the, the clientele or you mean just the girls and the girls? girls. Well, yeah, I would say that the girls usually um, were on top of, you know, STD risk. I wouldn't say they were always, like, you know, as knowledgeable. Like, I had one girlfriend tell me, oh, you can't catch anything from sucking it. I stuck all, you know, all, all those cocks without condoms. And I'm like, oh, good for you. However, I think that the same juice is the same juice, you know? Very strange. But I think that the girls usually on the internet were a little bit more cautious and more more careful when it came to safe sex practice than the girls on the street. Because the girl on the street can easily disappear, whereas the girl on the internet, you've got her phone number, you may have come to her house, you know, she can't just vanish overnight, you know? Go from, you know, crystal blue to all of a sudden, like, midnight sky in Texas, you know, she can't do that. So... I guess the internet girls are more mindful. Interesting. And uh, did you do sex work until you left Atlanta? Or did you do other jobs before you moved on? Mm. Yeah, I did. I did sex work mostly mm-hmm. until I left Atlanta. Strange story. I ended up coming to New York. Um, I ended up coming to New York. When I, when I was here, strange story. Um, one of my guys, my regular guys from way back in the day, he called me and was like, oh... Uh, I'm flying into New York, said, yeah, do you mind coming to see me? I'm like, okay, no problem. He bought my ticket. I came up to see him. And um, he's like, he's a masochist? Yeah. So, so yeah. So I called my girlfriend and I said, oh, I'm here. So she's like, oh, you know, you know, you made quite a bit of change. You've worked hard. Why don't you just stay in when we... Hang on, and she. I went to her house. We were hanging out, and it just ended up like just staying. I was like, "Oh, this is the city for me." Did you want to say more about him being a masochist? He said that and paused. I wasn't sure what. <laughs> Strangely enough, 
Um, a lot of my clients actually yeah. you know, have a net to be dominated. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if maybe it's my personality that I come off at times uh, controlling and vengeful, which is like <laughs> what uh, alerts them. Or maybe it's the quirkiness or maybe it's just the um, whole like erotic idea of having you know a trans woman dominate someone to whom is not normally not dominant or who is the dominant party in, in society usually but then you know you know what Freud says about it I imagine a class poise that you described and then not treating them too well that would go along with setting up a domination quite submission dynamic yeah um, so you came to New York for a job and had some money and decided to stay. Yeah. Yeah, I decided to stay. And then I ended up getting a job like, like a few months later, strange enough, which is like, I would end up here. Like, what was the job you got? Uh, at first the job was CMT, which was the case manager tech. With housing? Yes. How did you get into that? What was the transition? Um, so I mean, I had already started, like, going back to school. Okay. And then, like, I ended up getting the job straight enough. So then I continued to go to school, and I was like, oh. I was like, oh, this actually is, like, pretty fun. And then as I was working here, I talked to, I kind of, like, saw myself mirror images, I guess, inside of the clients as well as the residents because, you know, they, they had, like, life experiences that had formed them to whom they were. And they were, like, you know, normal people. Like, I'm a normal person, and they... Where, you know, just as quirky and stuff, and we meshed well. And the next thing you know, I was like, oh, I'm home. Like, it's like I'm working without working kind of thing, you know? But I imagine the pain was a lot less. Yeah. The, the whole schedule was radically different. Like, how yes. did you make that transition? Okay, so that? that's great point. <laughs> yeah. So the pay definitely was a lot less. Um, definitely a lot less. Like, you know, what I make in two weeks, I could have easily made beating someone, like, all night, you know? Actually, I probably could have made what I make in a month, beating one person, like, all night. And then I was like, huh. And there are many times I thought, oh, maybe I should just yike up my girls into the heavens and, uh, and you know, get back to it. But I'm like, oh, I actually, like, enjoy doing it. Like, like a lot of times I've said, oh, you know, maybe today was my last day, kind of thing. But I keep finding myself coming back to work, strangely enough. And then there was a transition period, honestly, in my life where I was like, oh, maybe I should take a week or two off and just get back to the old me. And then I was, I had, I had went back to, yeah. You're making luck. But I went back to it for like um, two weeks and I was like, oh, you know, the money's good, but you know, there's something missing. Mm-hmm. And I think what was missing was actually like the real connection to the person, where it's like, you know, someone comes and you beat them and degrade them and you walk them with a leash down the street, you know what I mean? So other people, you know, gawk at them and so forth. Yeah, I mean, that's all fun and enjoyable. But at the end of the day, it's better to have, like, you know, a connection with someone. And that's kind of like what this job gives me. It would be nice, though, if I could work my schedule so I was able to do both. Yeah. 
kind of like like a weird smear type of life, you know. Yeah. So what was um what was your initial connection to the job? Like how how did you did you read about it? Did you run into friends? What like what was yeah, my the friend process? to whom um, my friend to whom already lives here, like like one day I was with her and she was like, Oh I have to go to housing works and I was like, Oh what's that? She's like Oh, you know, I go here and stuff for like treatment and all this, yeah, yeah. Like we were there and I was like watching everybody. I was like, hmm. And then I saw another one of um, girls who I knew way back and stuff. She uh, is a New York girl, but she moved down to Atlanta and then she moved back up. And then she was working here, and I was like, wait. Like when I saw her, literally when I saw her, I was like, so somebody else had made that transition. Yeah, she had made the transition, and when I saw her, I was like, what the hell? I was like, what are you doing here? She's like, oh, I work here. I'm like, you work? You know, and like her and I became friends. Or we rekindled our friendship because we were always friends. Mm. You know, even though sometimes I had laughs that we kind of hadn't seen each other. We were always friends. And I was like, oh, I think this is like what I, what I want to do, you know? Yeah. And I've been here ever since. That's great. So tell me about what um, you would do as a CMT and now as a case manager. Yes. Yeah. So um, the job really isn't much different CMT to case manager, mm-hmm. but um, it's like making sure people are still connected to their medical or their, they have their entitlements, mm-hmm. provide them support, um, you know, things of that nature, help them with their benefits. Um, I'm back in school, so recently, like, um, I've been like working with mindfulness with people because, mm-hmm. like, it's like my thing. Like, mindfulness is like the shit. Like meditation. Yes. Interesting. But meaningful meditation, where like you're actually like focused on um, something, so that way you become more aware and and it like I know with me it has helped me a lot with um, my emotional dysregulations because when I first started this job, if someone said something to me, I'm like. What bitch? You know, now it's like okay. So less emotionally reactive. Yeah. Where did you first encounter meditation? Um. Okay, so there was a, a therapist named uh, Charles Sock. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, Charles Sock. Sometimes it's a Chucky Chuck Sock because because sometimes it's called him Chuck. But yeah. So um. He introduced me to mindfulness. And then when he introduced it to me and I started doing my reading and I went back to school and they started talking about it, I was like, oh, this is definitely this shit. Where did you go back to school? Oh, first to University of Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. And did that, was that a building or an online program? It's an online program. Yeah. Yeah. And did you go somewhere else after that? Yeah, Southern New Hampshire. Well, that's where I'm at now. Okay. Another online. Online, yeah. Yeah. But it works for my schedule because, um, you know, it takes me like two hours to go home, two hours to come to work. So, like, that's like four hours. Like, I literally type all of my, my work on my phone, like, and just email it to myself, you know, when I get home, when I get here, and it's like, done. I can do my reading on the train. Mm-hmm. That way I'm using my time instead of, you know, sitting and waiting. Being bored. And what's your uh, relationship with trans communities like in New York? Are you, do you have a similar level of engagement that you had in Atlanta? Or? No, I don't actually. Mm-hmm. No, I don't actually. I mean, I've, um, I've dealt with departments 
like departments, for example, like here, like um, TTHP program. What's that? It was the transgender transitional housing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also house people to whom we gender nonconformant. Is that a housing works program? Yeah, it was for people to whom, you know, were trans or gender nonconformant, but who had also a history of homelessness. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I was there for like, for like two years, the same two years I was here. Mm-hmm. I was actually working back and forth between the two. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was interesting. And that's when I noticed that there's like a huge difference in culture from here and back home. What are some of the differences? So back home, even though everyone had their own personal things going, it was like a, a closer sense of connectedness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Even though the demographics was basically the same. Mm-hmm. You know, minority trans women or gender former women in both, both groups. But there, it was a, a sense of connectedness and a sense of community more, whereas here it's more like, you know, I'm independent and it's about me, bitch, and you can go fuck yourself. That kind of, that kind of train of thought. And I don't know if that has to do with just the general culture of New York, because I noticed in New York, for example, like in New York, someone bumps you, they keep walking. I don't know if you've ever been bumped before. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah, they, they keep walking. It's not any excuse me or anything. You know, either they keep walking or else it starts like World War Three if you say something. So more individualistic here, less less integrated as a community. Yeah, it's an individual um, ethos. Yeah. So yeah, whereas like um, in Atlanta, it's more like communal. Mm-hmm. You know, no one is really worried about taking a, a loss or losing quote unquote face. You know, if it's better for the community as a whole. So I noticed this change, and it's even even mirrored, or it's even um, even present in the trans community. At least I've noticed this personally. Yeah. And uh, is the in terms of the ways people get by, is it a similar spread between sex work and scams? And I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Have you noticed differences in that in New York? Um. No, I mean when it comes to sex work, like a, you know, girls are. Well, yes, actually, I have noticed a difference. I mean, they're both engaged in sex work, yes, both both groups. But I notice here in New York, like women take more pride in in being engaged in sex work. Huh. It's very strange because, like, even when I was actively engaged, and you know, all my friends were actively engaged, we knew what we all were doing, but we didn't discuss it like amongst other people or openly because you know, oh, you don't want to be that 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 girl, you know. Whereas here it's like, oh, you know, yes, I'm a whore. <laughs> I'm a prostitute. I just had, I just had a trip twenty minutes ago. You know, and would that be in a social context or a political context or what? When do like people talk o- about it? Open forums, like, yeah, like open forums. It's very strange. It's so like panels, like no, like open forums, like social medias are just like, mm-hmm. um, like even in person. Like I know I was walking one day and. And I heard this girl say, I was walking near the, the other side, where the, the trans-transitional. Trans, and I heard this girl say, oh, yeah, yeah, I just had a trick. You know, he just paid me $100. First of all, back in my day, no girl was taking $100. No girl was taking a, no girl was taking $100. It was a lot less. Huh? It was a lot more. A lot more. Okay, tell me about the, the yeah, money. You didn't mention amounts at all. It was a lot more. Like, yeah. back then, it was the, first of all, like, you know, 
it was a lot more because the the group of trans women were were smaller yeah one and then like there was a different caliber amongst themselves whereas mm -hmm. here the number of trans women it's like it's like rabbits you know it's like rabbits you eat one and 20 more pop up you know like <laughs> it's very strange <laughs> It's like the heads of a hydra, I'm telling you. It's, it's very strange. So I guess because the competition are, you know, there's like a larger supply. Right. You know, people take less, but back in my day, no girl would say she took $100. How much would the people get paid in, in the early 2000s in Atlanta? I'm telling you, like... Like 300 an hour? Yeah, like, like, you know, like, okay, so, so... I would be 300 but if they came on like you know 270 I wouldn't you know I wouldn't complain you know I might they would hand me the money and I might be like you know this I won't forget this so next time make sure you know but you know I was grateful nevertheless I never let them know I was grateful I never let them know <laughs> but you know but here like $200 $200 like some I had a girl say oh he paid me $200 you know like that was like a huge amount no, no, not for all the work you probably had to do, you know, no. And uh, do you have a sense that the domination submission, like the, how common that is, is about the same here as Atlanta or people doing a... Well, I don't know, because I don't think, so when it comes to domination, like domination, humiliation, tantric mm -hmm. sex and all that kind of stuff, I don't think the girls here in New York really are versed in the, the art. I know that sounds really strange. It's a skill set. Yeah, it is. It, it, it really is, believe it or not. They're not versed in the art, nor are they versed in, um, in what it actually is to, to dominate someone, to make them feel how they should, be, how they should feel. You know what I mean? Because I know when I got into domination, I know my girlfriend was like, oh, well, this is something that they want from you. Here is a list of books. She gave me like, you know, 120 days of Sodom, you know, the Mark, the Mark design. Yeah, yeah. She gave me like um, Justine. She gave me like, you know, different works to read, you know, Venus and Pelts, everything. You know what I mean? The classics. And we talked about it and stuff and different things and stuff. And so that way, like, you know, like my imagination could run wild once I had something seated firmly. I don't think the girls here allow themselves, you know, time for that education, that proper education in the art. So therefore they can't provide the service. You know what I mean? So therefore it may be well I'm quite sure that there was a market for that here, you know, transgender dominations. But the girls aren't as versed in that, so they don't have the same access to the skills. I mean, I imagine they have the access, the girls have the access to, to the to the literature and the education, but I don't really think they care about that. Interesting. Yeah. And are the drugs similar here? No. How are they different? So in Atlanta, it's um, it's cocaine and ecstasy. Mm-hmm. Cocaine and ecstasy. Um, and now I hear it's Tina, which Tina is prevalent here, also. But here, like, you know, the, the drug of choice between the trans women, it seems to be like crack. Which, yeah, it's like, oh, you hear them say that too all the time. Oh, you know, you know, this guy wanted to get to know me. I told him, buy me a 50, 50 rock of crack, you know. 
Very strange. Is it more chaotic, the drug use in New York? Or similar in that way? Um, yeah, I would say it's the same level of, uh, of chaos. Disorder in both, yeah. But I think that it has to do with like the mindset, the cultural mindset here, and how here it's like socially acceptable for someone to say, you know, oh, I'm out using this, and I'm, you know, whereas in Atlanta, it's a little more conservative, I guess. So that aspect, it's still the Bible Belt, believe it or not, Atlanta. It's yeah. a little bit liberal than the rest of the South, but it's still the Bible Belt. Sure. Yeah. And uh, tell me about um, political action in trans communities. So, like, groups like Housing Works does a lot of advocacy. Would trans people uh, get involved in that through Housing Works or other groups? Or was it people that had really left the scene of, like, sex work that would do that? Or, like, how much overlap was there? What was kind of conversations about political advocacy like? Well, I noticed that too. Like, the people to whom were normally partaking the services mm-hmm. here that Housing Works provided weren't really interested in going out and engaging. But people who were outside to whom saw there needed to be a change, they were more open to saying, oh, you know, I don't mind coming forward and, and showing my support and being a part of this action. Who Who's outside? What do you who, who are, like, outside of, like, um... Like outside, like I know trans women, for example, who don't receive uh, services in the housework community or who weren't clients or so forth, and they're like, "Oh, you know, this is this is my community. So regardless if it affects me or not, I'm going to be a part of it." Mm-hmm. It's very strange. I don't quite understand which which part exactly. So people would be more open to helping with political action if they were not getting services. The ones to whom are receiving services are not as open and willing to be engaged in political actions, usually. Yeah. I mean, there are like one or two that I can think of that are like, you know, diehard. Why is that, do you think? I think it's a number of reasons. Maybe it's the fear that, oh, if I go and I do something, you know, I may rock the boat for me. And me rocking the boat may not go the way I want it to go. Or it's the fear of, oh, if I go on and do this, then, you know, maybe this will cause me, you know, financial or uh, an effect to my benefits, you know? People being scared about Yeah. Or maybe if I go and I... Retaliation. Yeah. I mean, everyone's afraid of some kind of retaliation, you know? Or else it's like, um, oh, if I go and do this, then people will think, you know, often I'm outed as a trans woman. Because I know a lot of girls to whom they say, oh, I'm living in stealth, no one knows. And they, if they go to like a political action, they'll say, oh, now I'm out of this being a trans woman, so I have a T on my chest. T. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And can you think of times that, that people have been more drawn to political action? Have there have been moments that, that it's been more accessible to people? Hmm. Well, I've, I've, I've noticed recently, like, when, um, Isla Needles? Hmm? Isla Needles, I think her name is. Okay. 
when uh when she was murdered, I noticed that there was like a huge support amongst you know basically everyone, but especially amongst the trans community. They were like, oh, you know, this is an injustice. Yeah. Somebody needs to speak out. Because, you know, in that, in that moment, we all see ourselves there. This was like a woman, I don't know if you remember what happened or not. Uh, tell, tell us about that. A lot of people she, she was the, um, she was the trans woman that was in Harlem walking. The guy um, was interested in her, approached her. Uh, I don't think she showed interest. And he, you know, discovered her truth. And he killed her. In broad daylight, on Crowded Street on 125th. What year was that? This is 2014, maybe 2000. 2014, so maybe 15. So it's not that far far gone. It's not that far gone at all. So when that happened, I noticed there was a huge uproar in the trans community, and everyone was, you know. I, I know trans women that, like, most trans women like, oh, you know, we need support, we're trans. And all the ones that lived in stealth that even came out and they were like, they need support, you know, that kind of thing. Back to the sheep and goats. But, um, yeah. So. And people showed up to, like, street demonstrations or, like, town halls or big meetings or what? Everything. Yeah. Like, it caused, it caused su- such a commotion that, like, you know, everybody wanted to be Everybody wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to, to be heard. Like, no voice wanted to be silenced kind of thing. You know? What groups did that work happen through? What groups did that work happen through? I think in the, the trans community in whole, in the LGBT community, um, at the time, you know, it's like, that's when the Trans Lives Matter t-shirts came out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen them. I have, yeah. Yeah. I actually saw... A young lady, like two or three days ago, with the Trans Lives Matter shirt, and I was like, "Huh, she's got balls," you know. But no that problem. was that ever an organization, or was that a? I, I think of Trans Lives Matters as being a slogan that, like, sometimes BYP one hundred people wear it, sometimes ALP people, sometimes people that aren't in any organizations at all. Yeah, I don't think it's like a, more or less an organization, but I think it was like. You know, it was something that resounded through the community, just in general, and like you know, like everyone grabbed their pitchfork and, and torch and was ready, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, yeah. So, but if people are coming together and meeting, somebody's gotta book the room. Somebody's gotta, you know. Yeah, I mean, as to that, I was knowledgeable. Who was, yeah, you know, up front, you know, kicking in the door before we all made our way. Yeah. But um. There were definitely were a number of number of people ready, you know. And what were they kind of going after? Were there demands? Were there like things that people hoped would happen out of it? Well, I think at that time they were demanding, you know, justice for the the woman to whom was slain. Unfortunately, she did not receive justice. I don't know if you recall. I, I didn't. Oh, she didn't receive justice. He was uh, he was acquitted. Yeah. I uh, found that guilty or something. And, um, of course, that caused another uproar and, and all what have you and stuff. But, um, they were demanding justice. They were demanding that trans people are treated equally and stuff. And they brought up, for example, like, you know, the New York City ordinances that allow people reasonable accommodations. And you walking down the street minding your own damn business, you should be allowed to live in peace, you know? No one should have to come up to you and 
and because they're harassing you and they discover sorry they discover you know whatever you've got going on they shouldn't feel like they have the right to, to punish you and the political groups that do do organizing with uh, trans people, trans people of color, do people know about them? Do they have opinions about them? Do they ignore them? Like what? I'm not really knowledgeable because, I mean, as, as far as here in New York, yeah, like, um, I'm kind of like an introvert. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, not saying I don't have moments where I'm like, you know, outgoing, but for the most of the time, I'm kind of to myself and out of the community. Yeah. Every now and again, I, I glaze over, you know, the local New York community, you know, hi, just passing through, you know. Show up to an event or on Twitter or what does that look like? Yes, like it's like through. either, you know, I show up, you know, just passing through on, um, on you know, one of the Facebook forums for the girls or else like actually at an event, you know, it's like there, it's like, oh. Like, oh, it's Paris. Like, hi. I'm yeah. not going to be here for 20 minutes. You know? Yeah. What kind of events? Um, I mean, I've, I've done a few events that they've had here. They, um, from the Transgiving. Transgiving? Yes. A Thanksgiving for trans people? Yes. Excellent. Transgiving. Is that a that housing works thing? The housing works was part of that, but uh, there was this group man-made that actually threw that. Oh, awesome. So I, I went to that. I went to other events afterwards, but that's the one that stuck in my mind because it was like really, yeah, it was a really fun event. That's awesome. Yeah. And what do you uh, do for fun? Um, read and travel usually. Yeah. I, I told you I'm like, I'm an introvert. What kind of books do you read? <sighs> what don't I read is the question. Okay. So um, I read everything. And right now I'm working through um, the poetry Poetry by uh, Ingelberg Bachman. Bachman? Ingelberg Bachman, yeah. Who is that? She's um, uh, an Austrian writer. Uh, like, in the 60s, really. Like, shortly after World War II to the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, a lot of, like, a lot of stuff she writes and stuff, mind you, is kind of, like, feminist in nature. So, uh, I enjoy her. I also enjoy Sappho, which is kind of weird, because, you like... enjoy what? Sappho? Oh, Sappho, the ancient Greek poet. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of weird, because, like, just me mentioning those two, you probably would think I'm, like, 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 diehard feminist. <laughs> there was a recent translation of Sappho that came out, right, a couple of years ago, I feel like, it was making the rounds. I don't know. Like, um, the one I have is kind of, like, an older translation. Oh, okay. But, I mean, it's possible. I think, and maybe it was... And Carson, or some big name poet recently, was involved in publishing a new translation. I forget. Yes, I, I read her poems and her uh, her fragments and stuff. She had. she's like really like she's like a really great writer. Nice. Yeah. What's your so you're worried that we might think you're a feminist? What's your relationship to feminism? Well, I mean, I'm a feminist in, in the point of saying like you know I believe women should be treated fairly, but I mean like that's like. Basically, I think that there's a stark difference between a woman and a man. Funny, because I'm a trans woman, and like, the, I guess, like, someone could split hairs here. Because I've had friends split hairs. Like, I have heterosexual, I had a heterosexual friend who, like, literally split, split hairs when I said there's a difference between a woman and a man. That didn't really go well. That conversation did not go well. But, um, yeah. And, but I believe, like, you know, a woman should be, you know, a woman and a guy should be a guy. 
like in their gender roles like what yes. what do you mean by that okay in gender roles so like women Remember, I'm Southern. Butch <laughs> or uh, yes women shouldn't be too butch ladies should be ladylike huh. and um have those qualities so which is kind of strange because i'm a trans woman you wouldn't expect this but i am a southerner southern first trans second huh. there's some butch women in the south not where I'm from. They're usually, the ladies are usually ladies, you know, and they act like ladies, even though they, um, even though they may be a little, a little mouthy, you know, and outspoken, but they're still ladies at the end of the day. They know how to behave as such. And like, like I consider myself to be a lady. So, what else do you read? Mm, I read a lot of stuff. Um, Bukowski, mm-hmm. uh, Ronaldo Arenas. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm trying to think like, the stuff like I read like last. Mostly literature. And yeah. 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 I mean, when it comes to poetry, like you know, I like Rilke. I like Neruda. Um, I like um, George Forrest. I just started like reading him. And what has he written? Is he a poet? Yeah, he's a poet. Um, I think they're like the 20s or the 30s, like French poet and stuff. He's like kind of like wild but fun kind mm-hmm. of guy. I think we would have been good friends. We would have been good friends. Me, him, and Bukowski, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was a, a writer in those days and stuff, mind you, and we all lived in the same area, we probably would have been good friends. Do you write poetry? No. Yeah. Might you write poetry? I used to, but um, I used to. But sometimes people are like, oh, this is a little out there. You know, I didn't think it really connected with. I didn't think it, it would connect really, but then who knows? Because Bukowski didn't think his poems really connected with people, and then like he was like an American secession, you know. Life is strange. Uh, and are you um, connected to other communities in New York? Like, who who do you hang out with in New York when you see people? Um, yes, actually. Yes. Like, um, I'm a member of, like, a, a French book club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, uh, this German meetup, so, like, we're, like, those are, like, all my friends come from, like, either one of those two groups. It's, like, very strange. What was the second one? A German meetup. German meetup? Yeah. For people who read German? or Who read or speak German. Speak German. Yeah. Do you speak German? Yeah, I speak German. And where did you learn German? I speak German and French. Yeah, and where did you learn to okay. German and French? So you skipped over that part. Okay. And it never came up. <laughs> it never came up. So, um, okay, so my eldest brother, he was in the, I think it was, it might be the Air Force, but it might be the military. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like he lived in Germany and his children are all by German. Or all by a German woman? Yes. So growing up, we so learned your German. nieces and nephews. Yeah, my nieces and nephews. Well, growing up, we learned German because uh, sometimes they code switch. So they mix the two. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it's easier just to speak German with them. So you learned German from your brother's family? Yes. And you lived with them when you were a kid? Well, more like when they would come, they would live with us kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. 
so when you're reading an Austrian, post-war Austrian poet, you're reading in German. German. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I read German. Yeah. I mean, there are like, um, granted, there are subtle differences between um, Austrian German and German German, but it's like, it's intelligible. Occasionally you get to like a, a word that is different or something that's a little funny, but it's no big deal. So a lot of people that learn languages through chatting while growing up then really struggle around reading. But you, you, did you spend a lot of time studying on your own or did it just come very easily to you? Um, languages actually come easily to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. They come easily to my father too. So I don't know if it's like a, uh, hereditary thing. Like that's up for debate. Like it's just like hereditary intelligence. Who knows? But, um, yeah. But I, I write, read, and speak in German, and French, and Spanish. Excellent. And why did you learn Spanish? Okay. So I learned Spanish because um, when I first moved to New York, my first boyfriend was Panamanian, and then my ex-husband was Panamanian, too. Yeah. You have to start through chatting with them. Yeah. Yeah. So you do pick up quickly. Yeah, it comes in handy in New York, though. Yeah. Yeah, it really comes in handy. Especially since I live in the Bronx, like, people speak to me usually in Spanish before they speak to me in English. Yeah. It's, like, very strange. Yeah. Where, um, do you know where your uh, family, has your family been in Georgia for a long time? Uh, one side has, and the other side hasn't. Where does the other side come from? Uh, Martinique. Yeah. It's um, a little island. Oh, you know what? I know a lot of Martinique. Oh, really? But tell us Have you visited? I have not been there. Oh, you should go. Don't go to Fort France, though. Everything's kind of high in Fort France. Go to like somewhere like Savon or something. Uh, France Fanon was from Martinique, so I've read about it a lot in my contacts. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah but um, it's... um. So, like, France has, like, um, its overseas departments. Mm-hmm. Just like the U.S. has, like, Puerto Rico and um, the Virgin Islands. And I think Guam. Mm-hmm. Yes, Guam. It's, like, the same kind of thing. So it's like in the Caribbean, but it's part of France, but it's technically not part of France because it's in the Caribbean. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So there's like Martinique, there's Guadeloupe, and there is a French Guiana. Which part of your family is from Martinique? My father's side. And have you gone there? Yes. What was that like? I don't really like Martinique. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like Martinique. Well, I don't like Fort de France. I like, um... When it comes to French Caribbean, I like Guadeloupe, which is where I usually go for a vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, the people are, like, a whole lot different. How so? Okay, so, in Martinique, people are usually, like, more snoozier than they are in France, which is very strange. Whereas in Guadeloupe, like, they're, like, a lot more friendlier and, and amiable. And then also I noticed, like, um, in Martinique, like, when you tell someone you're trans, they're, like... Like what? Like they're like, not really like, they're not able to grasp. Sometimes they don't really accept it. It's a whole big thing. Yeah. Whereas like in Guadalupe, they're like, oh, no big deal. You know? Why are you so let's go on a date? I think it's because it's like Guadalupe has like more like a, a relaxed culture. Yeah. And like, it's like a relaxed environment. Like, you know, like people live and enjoy life as it is, yeah. you know? And they accept life as it is. And they keep moving with that. Whereas in Martinique, it's like, oh, well, we have to reform this to fit this, you know? It's like fucking crazy. 
Um, and what, in both Atlanta and New York, what are relationships between Afro-Caribbean and African-American people like? Is there a lot of mixing? Is there, like, are there tensions? Or? Hmm. I don't really know. I, um, all my friends here are like Afro-Caribbean, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. And that's strange too. Like, oh, that's like really strange because, like, um, usually like Afro Caribbean people are usually like close-minded when it comes to like gender issues and stuff. But my friends who are Afro Caribbean, like, they're like all heterosexual men and women who know I am trans. Because it was like when I first moved here, I was like, oh, this is like something I should cheer. But then I was like, oh, fuck it. They know they don't. They don't know. They don't know. I don't care. You know. But like, they're like. They're like really cool. What? Why do you think that is? Why are you? I don't know. I think more or less that has to do with like um, being in the U.S. and becoming Americanized because in the Caribbean it's not really something that is like usually acceptable or something. Mm-hmm. I um, most of my relationships for a long time were in HIV and AIDS scenes, and there are tons of Afro-Caribbean people who, in that community, had gotten to know trans people you know, in HIV and AIDS services. But uh, I live in a mostly Afro-Caribbean neighborhood and I never talked about trans stuff with, with my neighbors. And I don't really know how it would go over. Hmm. It's like a very strange, it's strange, right? But I don't know, because like, okay, so where I live in the Bronx, it's like, like, you know, a strictly Latina community. Strictly Latino. Like I said, in my neighborhood, they speak to you in Spanish. Yeah. Or they speak to you in English. So, I noticed it's also, it's also the, the same thing in, like, the Latina community. Like, um, even though, like, there's, like, this huge, like, like, um, you know, machismo thing with the guys. Like, everyone seems to be open and stuff to, like, trans folk in general, it seems like. At least it's my experience. Are you out in your neighborhood? No, not really out, but I mean, I have friends and stuff who occasionally come over and visit when I come to New York, mm-hmm. and like, you know, like, you know, they're trans, and they've never had any issues, they still get guys hitting on them at the store, yeah. you know, they still get taken out on dates when they're here, sometimes I'm like, oh girl, what are you all doing, because it's like... And they're red when they're out, people can tell they're trans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I used to back in the yeah, yeah. So, what more would you like to talk about in this oral history? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty open. That's why I was like, you know, whatever. But I thought about it. Stuff. I think the reason why, uh, I, I think the reason why oftentimes there's a, a divide between um, the African American community and the Afro Caribbean community when it comes to to uh, LGBT issues mm-hmm. is because like laws like buggery, for example, were were uh, they were on the books. And stuff, so forth and stuff. And in some places, for example, like uh, Guadalupe Martinique and stuff, they decriminalize, you know, same-sex issues and so forth. Many, 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 many months ago, that wasn't really so in other parts of the Caribbean. So, I mean, I can see how you say, "Oh, I don't know how those conversations would go." <laughs> yeah, because you don't know exactly where someone's coming mm-hmm. from. That that's how it fits with their mentality. So, the state policy makes a big difference in shaping the culture. 
certainly in the U.S., places have varied a lot in their history of criminalization around homosexuality. Yeah, even uh, and even like trans issues. For example, in uh, in Louisiana, I remember years ago I had a friend got arrested for crime that's against nature for addressing counter sex. They're uh, getting all these laws passed all over the place, uh, uh, legalizing discrimination against trans people or or making it really explicit that trans people aren't allowed to access the bathroom. Right? Yeah. It's like, it's ridiculous. I actually had this, the same conversation with uh, my grandmother not too long ago. She was like, oh, well, we were sitting, my grandmother and I were sitting at the table, and she was like, oh, well, you know, how would you feel if a trans person came into the bathroom? And I just looked at her. <laughs> like, really? When was this? This is like when the whole thing happened uh, in North Carolina. That's like maybe very recently. Yes, like a year, year but and a half ago. But she knows your. I know. We were, it was crazy. <laughs> she was like, "How would you feel if a trans person came to you?" And I just looked at her. What and was she, she looked at me? What was she looking at? I have no idea. And then I was like, "Well, I imagine that they've been using the bathroom for a long time." <laughs> Whatever they're doing in their stall has nothing to do with you. That's so deep. So, what's her fantasy of a trans person? That's that you're. I don't know. It was like crazy. Okay, okay so it it was like, because I was flying to Atlanta and I was flying with uh, I think United Airways. So like United Airways goes, um, New York to, to Charlotte, Charlotte to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It was like the cheapest one, even though I had to stop. So I booked the cheap ticket. Yeah, but like, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I went to use the bathroom when I was there. And then like, she brought it up, you know what I mean? And when she said that, I just looked at her like, like really, really. Wow. What was it like for your, I mean, you weren't, as you were coming out or transitioning, you weren't living with your family anymore. No. So what, what has your connection been with them since, since then? Um... Bittersweet. For the most part, like, uh, I've had people to whom were accepted. Like, uh, my aunt, for example, she was, like, really, really accepted and stuff. Uh, I have another aunt who was really, really accepted. Cousins who were really, really accepted. Then on the flip side of the corner, there were the family members that were, like, like, they gave pushback from hell. And, like, they want to use, like, your birth name for everything. Strangely enough, this same grandmother finally called me parents after like living as a woman now for a long ass time like about a year and a half ago and since then she's always called me parents mm-hmm. like this year and a half but like like she always called me my birthday and I could, I could I'm telling you I could sit there like breast yikes up and everything and she still like she said it wasn't intentional I don't know. Because, like, all these years, he would have got corrected. <laughs> and on the flip side, like, uh, her husband, my grandfather, he's always used the right name, right pronoun, you know? Never had an issue. It's, like, weird. But I think that has to do with, um, like, sometimes women not wanting, like, pushback or feeling like, oh, you know, this is a threat, you know, trans folk. I know it sounds really crazy, right? It sounds crazy. 
um, women having the idea sometimes that oh, tr- trans folks are coming and stuff, and this is a threat. And really, it's not. Like everybody wants to live their, their own personal life. Yeah, I know the the feminist rhetoric around this being a threat, but women in general, I don't really know what 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 the. I mean, besides not believing, like believing trans people are freaks or just really weird or something, but what, what's the threat? What's the vision? Of the yeah, threat? I, I know it's like so crazy. Um, there was um, an article that I read like two or three days ago, and it caused like this whole stir on Facebook, where this woman's like, "Oh, you know, I don't want to." She's like, "I'm a feminist and I'm for women's rights and stuff." But why do trans women have to be called women? She was like, I don't want to go inside of the locker room and see penises swinging, you know, and all this. And I'm saying to myself, like, I'm quite sure even in the men's locker room there are not penises just swinging. (laughs) I mean, unless the person has, like, no couth, class, or self-dignity at all. You know, I'm quite sure you're not going to see, like, their in- most intimate parts. You know, like, here you go, I will display. You know, it's not probably going to happen. It's just crazy. Yeah. It seems like there's a moment of backlash and hostility around trans rights right now. Around the bathroom bills and the, the fe- articles by transphobic feminists in the newspaper. Transphobic feminists. Hashtag TERFs, I think they call it. TERFs? Trans exclusionary radical feminists. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, anything else you want to add? Or? I mean, I mean, it's a pretty good chat. It lasted quite some time. Yeah. Sorry to join you. No, no, I'm I'm absolutely available. Thank you so much for this time. I really appreciated hearing your story and, and your thoughts on the world and, and trans communities in Atlanta and New York. Oh, thank you.